0: Do no.
1: Hello, listeners, and welcome to the show. This is Every Record Ever Recorded, a field guide to the music of Earth. I'm Hannah. My guest is musician and folklorist Christine Barrett, and you could think of our subject today as a three-stranded braid. Textile arts, women's songs, and magic. Christina spent the last couple decades studying and performing in various folk music traditions. In her work as a composer, she makes new music with many strands of history woven through it, and in the fall of 2020, she'll be starting work toward her second master's in folklore at UC Berkeley, looking at music and textiles across a broad area of the world.
2: You know, all the way south to Caucasus, Georgia, Eastern Europe, up through the Baltic, Scandinavia, and Ireland and Scotland. And it just so happens that this is also the route that the warp-weighted loom took from its its beginnings from Mesopotamia and about uh, six 6,000 years ago. It was such a complicated item that likely it was just invented
1: once. A heads up, this episode contains brief, non-descriptive mentions of sexual assault and child abuse. There's also a minute of a background humming noise in a few places, including at the very beginning here. It doesn't last long. We forgot to unplug the refrigerator. Most episodes of this show, we start it with a little historical context. You know, the events that were happening right when the music began. For this one we have to go a long way back, maybe 30,000 years.
2: We've often thought of like epochs in history in terms of tech technology. And so we have like the Iron Age, the Bronze Age, blah blah blah, you know. But we really should have a designation that is the string. Because the string, if you think about it, like what a revolutionary piece of technology that that really was and and what it allowed People to suddenly do that they have ne- had never been able to do because you you got to think nets clothes in ways that they were not able to make so that they could go into environments that were inaccessible. You look through uh, linguistics, through etymology, through folklore, just recognizing how important that was, just reflected in in words like just in English, lifespan, span, spin, lineage, line. And these are existential. The, the, these are words that point towards ex- existential things, which tells us something, you know, mm. that, that this, that this, this was a technology that fundamentally uh, shifted the way that people perceive the world and the kind of activities that they engaged in all the time. What I started to become interested in, you know, after studying all this music, traditional music from these different places is, you know, you start to think about context. What is the context? And it's so easy to forget that predominant women um, participated in textile production and that, you know, until the industrial revolution, that meant that you were spinning all of your own thread. And if you've ever st- done any spinning, you recognize immediately that this takes a really long time. And so spinning would have been a constant part of daily life for most women. And so I really became interested in, in potentially how maybe some of these song structures developed out of this sort of world view and these activities, and how then then looking at folklore and motifs uh, throughout literature, looking at how women are sort of viewed within the activities of spinning and weaving, and um, a lot of notions surrounding magic. And by, by magic, I I mean sort of uh, like a combination of fear and awe, women's connection to the other world and liminal spaces, um, women's connection to reproduction, and like the fact that in Irish keening, uh, and, and keening just means cry in Irish, so they're uh, hired often to perform over the person who's passed for about three days. They wouldn't be able to sleep during that period, but they basically would have been the same woman in most cases that also acted as midwife. So oh, yeah, wow. so, so there, there's, and that's just the Irish tradition, but there's many other traditions. Uh, the Mende culture in Sierra Leone, same thing. Women are, are often have this dual role helping usher in life and usher out life. And then if you add to this lullabies,
3: women mm. sort of
2: like role of, ushering uh, into the realm of sleep. So really, again, liminal spaces, uh, sort of guardians of liminal spaces. Um, it's something I'm really excited about um, because it also sheds a lot of light on women's narratives and women's histories that at least f- for my part, I did not hear growing mm. up. Like what did the life of an ordinary woman look like? There's a million ways to look at history, and that's what's made this really exciting, because it's sort of taking these these two mediums that are so common and just seeing how they sort of inform one another. So why don't we just go ahead and start with a sutartin? Sutartines are Lithuanian traditional songs. They're actually a song form that almost completely disappeared until... The 19th century uh, recording technology helped preserve a lot of things, but then there also was a sudden interest in these songs. And a lot of early ethnomusicologists and and archaeologists and and historians that were collecting this stuff um, were men. And uh, a lot of them described this music as like the howling of
3: wolves and Mm. as being
2: hideous and ugly music. Those attitudes have shifted, of course, over, over the years, but um, they were ritual songs. They are sung now. They've, they've really had a resurgence, but they aren't those same contexts in which they were being performed uh, are, are, aren't really happening. One of the things that's really interesting about them is that um, they use the same terminology as weeding. They are basically aural weavings, you have these different voices, and just like with a warp and a weft, these different voices at different points, like will like oop pop up. Like, I I can see that color. Oop, like this this now jumps out. And a lot of the even the subject matter also supports this idea. And and in fact, there was uh, an amazing ethnomusicologist, a composer actually, that took a sutratine used a piece of graph paper, and took the structure of the song and made a graphic representation of it as opposed to a notated representation of it. And the pattern of the song very much looked like the traditional woven belts that the women would wear while they were performing these songs. Wow. Yes. they so cool. they <laughs> so cool. But then, like, yeah, some of the subject matter, so a real common um, subject is bees uh, in these in, in these songs. And there's a, an amazing album that you can – it's a double album, actually, that you can get um, – that is performed by Tris Katuriyose, which um, is led by probably the leading scholar – Studying Lithuanian sutertinas. there's a whole double album that's just like one whole CD is just bees, just the sound of bees. Wow! <laughs> and the other one uh, is bee-related sutratinas that are being performed amongst the bees out, actually, in in the field in which the uh, the the hives are located. I won't go into great detail about why the bee is significant in Lithuanian mythology, but um, one of the things. You know, some of the themes, at least, that they rep- represent are uh, weaving. So they sort of talk about the bees as being weavers of honeycomb. And they're very much associated with, with life force and um, regeneration. So this first one that we'll listen to is um, for a bee.
1: So I have a little mini fascination with group music making logistics, what to sing or play and when and how and when to stop, and then how to convey that information to the whole group. Every tradition seems to solve that problem in a different way. And I just love it. So naturally, I asked Christine how sutartinas work. uh, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, So how does it end? How do you decide? So, well,
2: it's 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 in the structure of the song. So uh, sutartinas are usually for two voices, three voices or four voices like the easiest kind of sujitinas for us Westerners to understand is usually the uh, four person one, which is basically structured a bit like a round. So it's, it's often the same melody. And there's usually two parts. First half usually uh, comprises the content of the song in Lithuanian. The other half usually consists of words like tuto or things like, like, like that, that, um, some people would describe as nonsense words. I don't like to call anything like that nonsense words because I think it just has a negative connotation and also connotes that it doesn't have substance when there could be a lot of different explanations for why we don't understand. <laughs> mm. There's, are some linguists who have done, uh, research into these, these sounds or these, these word bits. One linguist believes that, um, it's connected to some version of a previous language that is lost, that is no longer with us. It may also be that, you know, there's portions of the songs or certain things that, that cannot be said, um, that are taboo. Then also sometimes like, you know, things just, uh, the, the words are lost. The content is, is lost. However, in this case, I don't think with the Sutartinas that that is the case because it's so consistent. It's, it's in almost all of the sutartinas. So, um, more, more than likely it, you know, refers to a much older language that doesn't exist now. So you have these two halves and, um, the way that it works is that what you you have the first half that starts, you know, with the first voice. And as soon as they're on that second half, then you have the next voice come in and it just, it it goes on in around like that. Other sutartinas are more set up to be there are slightly two different melodies that are always like related to, to one another one again is sort of the content words in Lithuanian and then the other the other one is are these uh, uh more sound lyrics uh, that we don't quite understand and then they just overlap on each other but it's almost always there is there's is a voice that starts the song as far as I know there aren't any sutratinas where there's Two people that start at the same time. There's always just just one voice, and they are usually sung um, by individuals. And one of the reasons for this just just that I'm going to throw it. Having sung these with larger groups of people, you really get a sense for the for the different color of the voices and 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 the and the way that they interweave with one another is a lot clearer when you're when you just have one person singing each part. So yeah, that's that's the basic structure, and then they just there isn't like the beginning, a middle, and an end. It's like once it starts, it's like if think of it as, as a piece of fabric, as a woven piece of fabric. It's the square. These things happen and they, and they happen c- consistently. And then, and then it's done. And, and that's the end of the song.
1: What context would this have been sung in? What are they, what are they doing while they're singing?
2: So r- ritual. Uh, these, these are all ritual songs. Often they also include a kind of movement the singers are often again like very much like a piece of fabric uh facing one another and there are dances that go along with these as well what's interesting about actually having sung these is that you sort of get an idea of the physicality involved in doing them and they really are built to be able to be sung for a long period of time it's sort of built in to to get a rest so that you you really can do it for hours at a time, which which I mean in some in some of these they they could have gone on and on and on as part of a ritual, and they're they're built to be able to do that, and you would have been doing these for anywhere from about five minutes to a few hours. Yeah. So so that's uh, so it would make sense to sort of talk about the different ways that we're relating these these activities together, meaning the the textiles and the music. The most straightforward is obviously the work songs, uh, the songs that would have been done to actually accompany the textile making process. We have a lot of different spinning songs, uh, weaving songs, because again, when you're doing this for long extended periods of time, and you have to do, I mean, in some places in the world, textile production took more time and energy than food production. And I think, I think because we are living in a, post-industrial revolution world, uh, where everything is so automated that it's, it's easy to forget just how labor intensive these activities were and how much a part of daily life. And one of the reasons we, we know that, or, or can, can guess why they are generally the provenance of, of women's activities is, you know, it's something you can start and easily put down. It's not dangerous. Uh, Spinning is not dangerous. Uh, Looms, uh, though they are complicated, they are not particularly dangerous. They can be set up in the home. But then some of the forms that I'm I'm interested in additionally, or even in some ways even more so, are more the songs that are related to textile production more conceptually, that take a lot of the same structure of the activity or the structure of the thing being made and make an aural version of that. Mm. And whether that was a conscious decision or whether it's simply just, this is an activity we do all the time. This is such a normal part of the way that we perceive movement and the activities of everyday life that they just end up becoming parts of the, the structure of, of, the songs themselves. And then there are the songs or the, the song forms or vocal arts traditions that are conceptually even further Removed from the actual activity, but are very much informed, and so those would be like the Irish keening. Um, these these ideas of women being related to spinning, and spinning being very much related to notions of fate. In so many folklore traditions, we have um, you know like the the Norns of Nor, uh, Norse mythology and uh, the Morai of Greek mythology that are all spinning. Spinning into existence life and spinning out of existence. And these are almost always female. And there's both this sort of fear and awe around these, these activities, this magical element to it. And so with Irish Keening, you know, because it's, it's an activity that, that is meant to help usher those who have passed to the other world. Women, naturally fit that, that, that role, because, you know, they're associated with notions of these uh, stories around spinning and to even like further sort of back up this, this notion, it would have been very common practice to be spinning while you were in, in the birthing room. For instance, birthing is a long process. Deathing is also a long process. And so spinning would have been, there like literally happening right there but yeah there's various lament traditions and and i would even say lullabies uh could could fall into this category ideas of women and spinning and fate basically liminal songs Mm. songs for liminal activities
1: so almost all these death songs that have been preserved are laments we'll hear one of the few exceptions in just a moment because keening involves improvisation by the keener where a lament is more of a composed song at least as far as that goes in folk music. Keening is considered a lost art not because the songs are gone. They were always ephemeral because of the improvisation no two keens would have been the same. What did the keening in was that the practice was suppressed by the Catholic Church, breaking the lineage of keeners who would have learned from the previous generation and taught the next. We're going to listen now to one of the only survivors, a keen that was actually recorded. The singer's name is Kitty Nigalgor, and it was recorded by the folk song collector Alan Lomax, who anglicized her name to Kitty Gallagher. It's a keen for a dead child, recorded not during a wake, but in Lomax's hotel room in Letterkenny on the 5th of February, 1951. The number of surviving Keens is very small, and as far as I've been able to discover, they were all recorded as demonstrations outside their original context at a wake. The body of laments that has been preserved is a lot wider, and I should note here, because the words are so important, that there's a link to the full translations of almost every song in this episode in the show notes. Yeah, of
2: what it is, And so this this particular lament is is odd, because it's, it's probably the only one within its category. It was written by a woman on her deathbed, and it was a lament for her own death. At, at the beginning of the song, she's lamenting having to leave her family and having to die. And then it's, it switches into, you know, what's going to happen to my family and a list of instructions. <laughs> she, wants. she wants a particular person to make her, her coffin. And then it, it, it ends with, with instructions to, as just where to bury her, and as the legend goes around the song, and, and this was an actual real woman that existed in Connemara in the west of Ireland. As the legend goes, it was in the winter that she died, so um, she would have had to have been transported via boat, and uh, the storms were too rough. And in, in Irish tradition, you have the body laid out for three days. Three is a really important number in Irish mythology. The Three Marys, you have the triple goddess, uh, Maiden Mother Crone. Uh, it just pops up all over the place. So it's as part of the ritual, you know, the, the, the idea behind the wake is that you have these these three days. You know, we sort of think of like life death. It's just a, like a light switch and it's just done, mm-hmm. you know, but in, in a lot of places in the world, and this, this makes sense to me, you know, it's this process. Like right? they aren't all the way gone. And, part of the Keening woman's responsibility was to help guide. There were rules or things that were taboo for her to do while she was engaging in this. And some of, you know, some of it, like, like the rule for sleeping, she wasn't allowed to sleep is interesting. If you just like pick apart, you know, what, what sleeping, you know, it's again, going into a liminal realm and, uh, in that, in that moment, she would have been the gatekeeper. This, this would also be true in, uh, in the birthing room too. But, you know, it's like, you don't really want to go to sleep because you've got to be paying attention to what's going on and, mm. you know. So this is her lament. It's a Sean Nose song. Shawn Nose is just an umbrella term, uh, that, refer, it literally means old way. It's an old way of singing and it's a vocal tradition that's quite, quite old. One of the um, other activities related to nos that is interesting is the idea of twisting. So when a Shannos singer would be singing, there'd be another woman who would be holding her hand and just doing this twisting motion. And the idea is that you help the singer spin the song, spin it out of the body The singer would often have their eyes closed or be facing a corner of the wall. And the idea is, is you are just a vessel. You know, the song has its own life.
4: Come. korlei möt em give for Blå ¡Gracias!
2: Like we have such short attention spans. I know. And like some of these songs are like this this one, if you do all the verses, is around seven to eight minutes. And that's, you know, would have been more normal. But that's also thinking about this is the way people told stories. I mean ballads, you know, all the English ballads and the Irish ballads. If you do them in their in their full entirety, it's fifteen minutes, yeah. maybe, you know. But well, what do you what did you do in the evenings? Like yeah. that's Yeah, and, and Wait, why you know, are you in
1: such a hurry to get <laughs> off to the, like what yeah. we got next is another long song.
2: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well they all, you know, for
1: stories like a, yeah. a lot of them were stories you know and in this you can hardly begrudge somebody like seven yeah. minutes to say goodbye to the whole world I mean that's yes. kind of it's yeah. not very much time well and
2: again like at, at a wake it would have been like it's just three whole days people are coming and going it's sort of a party so there's wake games that people participated in there are a whole bunch of different kinds of games that, that they, they would do they would dance a lot of drinking you know it was a opportunity also for people to visit one another. And um, it's, it was very much, you know, part of the social fabric of the community. So yeah, it's like you got, you got three days to fill (laughs) and there always has to be somebody awake. That's, that's the idea is that you just have, people are rotating shifts is kind of was, was the idea. And you could, you know, do what you do need to do to entertain each other and yourselves and sort of also process the death you know and, and process death because death isn't just grieving over one person like a particular individual death is also it inevitably makes you think of your own place in the world and it's 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 an existential moment that that, that that we have and so so much a part of that deathing process is is also the people processing the concept of it and and their their relationship with it and their their experience of it. Um, How did that
1: song in particular come to us? That's not the one who wrote it. He's singing it, is it? No,
2: no, no. She's she's long gone. Uh, so it was it would have been written in the 19th century. And uh, it was her, I believe her daughter that it came from. So her daughter remembered it. And mm. that would have been passed along or orally. Um, And that's that's the other thing about singing an oral tradition. It's a lot easier to remember a story once you've learned to sing it. And I think sometimes people think of oral tradition as being the sort of like all just rote memorization and that's just not what it is. It's part that and it's part developing compositional skills as a singer and tapping into your own humanity and adding your own experiences to it. And so it's a art making process as much as it is uh, passing along a song.
1: And it's sort of intentional. It's not like a, a yeah. telephone game sort of thing where no. you're introducing errors. Yes. You're, yes. you're adding to the fabric.
2: Yes. Yes. And you really have to give yourself to the song. Like, you know, I've been studying Shine f- for a number of years now. And this particular song we just listened to, it's a song I've been singing for years now. Um, and it's only in this last few months that I felt like, okay. I think I got it. It's not because, you know, like I didn't know how to sing the song. I didn't know the melody. I didn't know the words. It was the actually like letting the song live inside of my body. And it was connecting who I am and my, my own experiences to her and her experience of the world. And it's still, I feel like this is a song i will be singing my entire life and still be learning new things about it. And that's one of the things I love about traditional music. And I know that's, that's a really blanketed term. Um, but for lack of a better term, um, is that it's, it's really looking at music and singing in ways that are very different from a Western standpoint. And it's really placing an importance and value on certain components of performance that, that are really unfamiliar to us, like, uh, from a more pop culture sort of situation. Even notions of beauty, for instance, um, where technical prowess isn't always the most valuable. In Shanos, there's the concept of the authority of the song. In order to perform a Shanos song well, you have to tap into the authority of the song. And there isn't this exact, like, list, like, if you do this, this, and this, then you will... Gain access to the authority of the song. It's like nah, it's, it's a little bit more ambiguous, and but you 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 can hear it when somebody's performing it that has that has tapped into the authority of the song. You hear it. You recognize it. In Sean yes. too. There's um, very very little metronomic structural act, activity, and and my Sean teacher Mary McLaughlin, she suggested like think of it as like it's a set of waves on the ocean. You're on a boat. There, there isn't just like a rhythm to the waves that's consistent, but it's kind of basically today, these conditions, it's kind of like, this is the, the basic rhythm. It's not exactly like this, like dun, dun, dun kind of rhythm, you know, it's like choosing like what for you are the most emotive and important words and lingering on those or not lingering on them. Like you're making all of these choices. You're ornamenting this particular moment, be, to place emphasis on it. And that's what a lot of the, the ornamentation in Chanos in is around, like, emotional, like, hey, pay attention to this. This this is important. And then you have, like, different singers, like, the, you know, like, uh, one of the most famous singers is uh, Joe Heaney. And, and he often would start the song very ornamented, and as the song went, it would become more and more stark. And there was such, like, a powerful emotive thing that he's able to, to convey by doing that. That's basically the authority of the song is kind of fits authentically inside of you and you have given yourself to the song. And that means that like the way that you perform it is going to be different than the way that the master you learned it from is going to be performing it. And it needs to be because you're two different individuals Is this lack of hierarchy? Mm. All of this music belongs in particular contexts. They are, there are tools within these different contexts and they are meant generally for everybody to have access to them. They are not just for a particular small number of people to be able to participate in them, but no, like everybody's meant to participate in them. You know, before recording technology, if you want to listen to music, you probably had to make the music yourself. Yeah. There was and no so, room for, no. for
1: this idea of perfection yeah. that you could make in the recording studio yes. and then play back endlessly yes. this single performance. Yes. yes.
2: And it's, I mean, I think it's such a sad way to also look at music and it's such yeah. a sad like relationship to have to music um, because it makes singing very prohibitive Yeah, to a lot of people. Um, yeah. Americans don't sing. And it's so sad. I, I I truly think it's a fundamental human right for people to sing. In fact, there's a lot of shame around singing, <laughs> you yeah. know, like yeah, uh, which brings us back to women. You know, it's that, that's one of the other concepts you know that I've been sort of re- researching or, or thinking about, and you know, these these traditional roles or, or stories surrounding women and their bodies. You know, at one time. We didn't really understand how people got pregnant. And so, you, you know, you, of course there's going to be notions around which folklore, you know, beliefs or, or, or whatever around uh, women and reproduction. It's sort of this magical like, whoa, you know, you're just popping human life out of your body. And then if you parallel that with spinning, again, it's like, whoa, you just made this thing out of nothing. Because I really like all spinning is is just you take almost any material you you, you can imagine, like plant material or, or whatever, or just hair laying around. You pick it up and you make this string and then all of a sudden you've made this other thing and it's it's that's magic. I've often also wondered if some of this shame around singing is also, you know, around women's bodies and the control of, of women's bodies as well. How can it not be related? Especially yeah.
1: since the point at which I'm sure you've had this experience, mm-hmm. too, being a singer. You tell somebody that you sing and they're like, oh, that's so great. I used to sing until yeah. I was about 13. Yeah. And, like, thinking about the mm-hmm. other things that are happening to our bodies around oh, yeah. about 13. Totally. Everything gets secret all of a sudden. Yes.
2: Yes. Exactly. Exactly. And and so there, there's, uh, I think her name is Grace Johnson. She's a singer, uh, and an, an opera singer. She was um, working on, on her di- dissertation when I met her. Her research revolved around her experience with teaching. Once she sort of was able to get a student to finally tap into particular places within their vocal apparatus uh, that produce a lot of sound. That that was generally uh, the the idea was was picking up a lot of space kind of kind of sound. It would trigger all these memories of sexual assault, and a lot of times like what happens physiologically, you know, when when we are Assaulted are sort of like torso, uh, just contracts and just stays that way. It's, it's very much related to breathing. You know, it's, it's like you never are able to take a full, deep, complete breath because just, you know, you're in this fight or f- fight mode. And yet another layer of sort of shame and, and taboo. If you can't use your voice to talk about it how can that not then also relate to singing and expressing oneself?
1: Yeah, Um, absolutely.
2: Yeah, there's just like so intimately connected. And a lot of students that I've had, it's, you know, I I encounter over and over again that especially women, they come to me wanting to be able to make more sound. Mm -hmm. And they have this really closed off, like sort of trapped thing going on in their vocal apparatus. I have the same thing. I was such a quiet singer and it drove me. It just felt like my voice was stuck somewhere and I could not get it out. And for me personally, you know, like layered on, layered on top of that was my grandfather started sexually abusing me when I was three and uh, later raped me as, as a child. And so like, I just stopped speaking. My, My parents had no idea that any of this was going on, of course. And, they just assumed that maybe I was deaf. And so I had all these, these tests, wow. they had these these hearing tests and, you know, come to find, of course I'm not, I'm not deaf. It's just, I had such a debilitating stutter that like, I just could not talk uh, for quite a few years. And, and talking was really, it felt like drowning. That's like trying to talk felt like drowning. It felt like I was like just choking on words. Obviously like over time I overcame my stutter, but, but singing what was the next like sort of step. Mm-hmm. My singing voice is so trapped inside of me still. And so it really wasn't until I started studying women's traditional music
3: mm-hmm.
2: and learning how to access all these different parts of my vocal apparatus that sort of like, you just realize like how much these, these experiences truly and, and not being able to talk about them, mm-hmm. not being able to have any sort of, dialogue with anybody you know like it's just and it's such a, a, a common experience it's such a honestly it's a part of our culture yeah like it's yeah. It, it must be like it the fact that it's you know one in three one in five whatever depending on who you're talking to it's like there's a lot of women yeah that makes it kind of like yeah it's it's okay to To do that, and then you know you you look at like how long do people spend in prison who do get who actually get convicted of of assault? You know, it's like it's it's you know you might spend more time in prison for stealing a car. It's within our culture that it's not even like women's bodies are not valued, like women's autonomy is not valued. And then going back to textile mediums, like how do we view textiles? How do we view knitting? How do we view Needlework—it's—it's—it's a devalued art form, and it's been for quite some time. I think that's like really important to look at the way that craft, you know, is Mm -hmm. sort of because that's that's what it's been delegated to craft, and it's such a shame to me that craft has become such a sort of almost derogatory sort of term, you know. Like craft at one time did not have a negative connotation, and it's you know like. How many women do I know that do some sort of textile art still? Mm -hmm. My sister is a professional weaver. My, my younger sister, all of the women in my family are really gifted textile artists. I grew up doing textile arts. My, I learned them from my grandmothers, you know, like I learned them from my mother. Like that was just what you do. And it's just interesting to hear the way that they talk about it, even just within my own family, you know, Mm. my younger sister being an an exception because she actually, (laughs) it took her years, you know, of of me and uh, encouraging her and herself sort of like coming into her own power. It's like, no, this is the thing I'm really good at and I'm going to do it. I'm going to like go to art school and I'm going to be a weaver. But it's hard. It's really hard. And she's like a super successful weaver. And yet it's still hard to be taken seriously mm-hmm. as an artist. If she has a show with a painter, you know, it's like how much more are the paintings going to go for versus her weavings? There's just there's not much material talking about textile arts in our art history. Period. Yeah. It's like you usually a side note at best. Mm-hmm. Early archaeology, it was really common to just they just wouldn't either document the textile pieces or uh, they would just discard them. And and this is in locations where they even survived. Period, which yeah. is remarkable. Like you don't you don't really get anything surviving more than 2,000 years, you know, and I mean, that is incredible if you get pieces of that, you know, and you you have to be in the exact right conditions like Egypt, you know, right. So we just have nothing, you know, from, from other, other parts of the world. But of course there are exceptions. There were, there were a few amazing people who were just, you know, really uptight about documenting everything. And we get these amazing pieces, you know, that we can learn just how sophisticated these textile practices were. There are, like, ways that they were spinning and weaving that just, I mean, it would be really difficult to do that well now. Incredible, incredible, rich history that is essentially a part of women's history. Like, there's, you can't, you can't separate out textile arts and women's history. You know, it's just, yeah, so it's all these layers of just, like, devalue, 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 shame, 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 and... And so, like, piecing together all of these, these things, it's, it's a lot of work. It takes – that's that's why, you know, again, like, just, you know, why I started to get interested in, like, I love singing this, this music. I love these traditions and all the rich history around that. But then, like, wow, let's also bring in, like, some of the other parts of the daily life in which these were sung and developed. Yeah. And look at those. And, like, could that have influenced? But it's like, you know, we have to look – At linguistics, we have to look at all of these different disciplines in order to piece together any sort of history. And a lot of these song forms that I'm talking about that are related to the textile things, these are song forms that have been either systematically annihilated (laughs) or not documented so well or not preserved or very much controlled. Mm -hmm. So many of them, like, it's, it's a miracle that they... That they've survived, yeah, you know, at all, yeah. So, this next one is—it's uh, an Estonian runic song. I've loved Estonian music for, you know, since my one of my best friends in high school. So I grew up in Iowa, in a horrible, tiny industrial farming town. Before the internet, the main industry was a slaughterhouse that kills approximately twenty-five thousand pigs a day. Yes. Really uplifting, wonderful place to grow up. <laughs> and to be different in a place like that was just really not okay. And so one of my best friends growing up was Estonian. It was an Estonian foreign exchange student in small towns in the mid Midwest. I don't know what the deal was, but being a foreign exchange student was just like, you were not accepted. Like, And of course, I always made the foreign exchange students my friends, because they're like, wow, somebody from the outside world, like, oh, you know, I thought they were like really interesting, you know, and they were always like, oh my God, where, where am I? You know, like, sorry, they put you in Iowa, in Marshalltown, Iowa. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, but she, she really made me fall, fall in love with um, Estonian culture. Like, I didn't really know anything about it, you know, and she taught me some Estonian or whatever, but um you know, 20 years later, I, I finally went to Estonia this last summer and um, went to La Lupido, which is this huge uh, song and dance festival, traditional song and dance festival. In Estonia, uh, they have a huge traditional vocal uh, library, one of the largest in the world. And my friend's mother-in-law was one of the people who who uh, really worked during the Soviet era to preserve these, these, these things, because the Soviet era was a really dark period in Estonian history. Uh, this the same could be true, Georgia and many other, um, ex-Soviet States. Almost everybody that I talked to, they knew somebody directly in their family or friends that disappeared or were killed, sent off to Siberia. I mean, it's, there is a deeply traumatized, <laughs> component to the culture and a resiliency also as as a result. And so they love their traditional music and song. Um it's also one of those really rare cases where you have a small culture that, you know, there's only a million Estonians in the world that have a nation state, that are a nation state. You know, there are so many examples even within that part of the world you know uh Livonians, uh karelians you know there's, there's all these these people who have their own language their own culture and they don't have this nation state nation states is a relatively new idea and so there it's also very much a celebration of being like we know that that is really like special like <laughs> like we like this is incredible because it's just amazing that that they existed considering like how much they've been pummeled by various empires or, um, you know, Sweden, obviously the Russians and, but one of the song forms that I really, I really love. And I got to study when I was in, in Estonia, runic songs. And there's, there's a lot of runic songs. Runic songs are quite old. They're, um, usually ritual songs. The ones that I, that, that I'll, I'll I'll talk about today are, are, um, Lomine, which that just means creation. And it's, it's about the creation of world but the way that the runic songs work is like they're, they're very much structured after spinning. In spinning, you have two pieces of fiber that you are overlapping part of the way to connect them. And you just do this over and over again. And so you have a piece of string. Sonically, what's going on with the runic songs is that you have a melody. Oftentimes, it's just the same melody, but but it's it, there's it's always the, these two overlap points. And it's so that the song is just continuous, um, and it basically tells the story, uh, the the traditional Estonian idea of the, the creation of the world, which uh, involves an egg and rainbows. This, the, those are all very potent uh, symbols within uh, the Baltic world. Their, their most basic form, the, the runic songs, is just two voices back and back and forth, just two women singing back and back and forth. There are arrangements that have since, since been done that involved in adding other voices as you go. I like to sort of think of these other voices as being part of, like, the string is now becoming a weaving. One way that I think about polyphony, actually, is, like, it's sonic weaving. I mean, what if, what if? What if even the concept of polyphony, like the idea of that came even subconsciously from the idea of weeding. We're putting these different elements that are different from one another together to create this solid thing. So.
1: What is that? There were the two women singing, and what was mm-hmm. it the third tone that came in?
2: A drum. So it was arranged specifically by uh, Margot Perlar, who is a contemporary arranger. This is a particular arrangement that, that he's done that when I asked about it, they were like, oh yeah, that's that's really, really interesting. It's not necessarily a traditional arrangement, but it's not not a traditional arrangement, <laughs> if, yeah. that, if that makes sense. It's like... Yeah, these kinds of harmonies exist throughout Estonian polyphony. Uh, so that's just a, a little extra sloth. Right, so um, I think it would be weird to not have an example of <laughs> an actual work work song related to textiles. There's so many different uh, uh, ones that we could be choosing from, but uh, one of my favorite is uh, Scottish walking songs. It's W-A-U-L-K-I-N-G, sung by women who are walking Cloth. So walking cloth would, would be a process that they would do, um, when they're processing the, the wool that helps make it, uh, more weatherproof. Uh, and it, it, it makes the wool stronger. Um, but it, the, you basically have to beat the crap out of the <laughs> wool. <laughs> and, um, traditionally you would have used Urine as part of it. Urine was, honestly, a, traditionally a big part of dyeing uh, and and various parts of the textile process. Um, maybe once again making it. Uh, not the most popular <laughs> process within uh the textile making process but um a not necessary one i done on a on a small scale it's not a big deal i have dyed cloth with p once once before just to see and there's a really beautiful long tradition of knitting and uh creating fabric with wool in the british isles and in scotland and ireland and, and in fact um I know, at least in in Ireland, and it's also part of Scottish uh, cultural history um, because they're such a boating and and and, and fishing and, and maritime related activities are such a big part of uh, the culture. It's really dangerous. It's a dangerous place to to be in a boat. They would actually um, knit particular kinds of uh, cord, and they were identifying cords so that, like, if a if a body washed up on shore and they were unrecognizable, that they would recognize that particular identifying pattern. Sweaters were they were worn a lot at sea, and so they would go through this process with the the walking process to make them that much stronger and and that and that much uh, more able to um, to keep the water out so that uh, you keep the person warm. So this is one of uh, many many walking songs.
1: find a full translation for this particular song, although good old Google translates the title as Dear Lady, What is Your Order? and Sorry, I'm Sad. Ted Joya in his book Work Songs, says that the verses of walking songs are occasionally about the task at hand, but more often they're about love, and primarily about heartbreak and the absence of the beloved. As an example, he quotes, Wet is the night and cold. It's not the care of the cattle field, nor care of herding cows with calves that weighs upon me, but anxiety about you, Roderick, my love. Oh, Roderick. As for the choruses, folklorist Margaret Fay Shaw has a delightful description, usually meaningless, she says, consisting of syllables that carry the air. But they have a mnemonic significance and must be sung correctly. That's really cool. The form reminded me uh, a little bit of sea shanties. Oh, yeah. So it's helpful because you don't have to know all the same songs to sing together.
2: That happens a lot throughout Mm -hmm. traditional music. You know, you have a call call and response kind of situation. And I know in, in work songs, in some traditions at least, you would sometimes have specific people who were not actually doing the activity. Their job was just to keep a particular rhythm it was such an important part of the activity that they didn't actually do it because, <laughs> you know, they, they just had to make sure. And just say, you know, the, that's a job in and of itself. We'll, we'll actually listen to next um, a, a woman's work party song. And it, it, you come across these all the time. And I, I, I'm not even sure if, like, every time I've been told, like, oh, this particular Bulgarian song, it's a woman's work, you know, it's it's inviting people to a work party. You don't really think about, like, what they're actually doing. but they're likely doing textile arts. This particular song that we'll listen to next is is actually from Lozono. So it's 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 from an area that's it's on the border between Turkey and Georgia, another one of those cultures that is, you know, they have their own language, their own music, their own uh, cultural material um, and identity, but they don't have their own nation state. And another in, interesting part of this particular song form is that it was actually developed in response to being on the border between these two different countries. You have this arbitrary line, basically, you know, that's drawn right in the middle of Lazona. And you have people, let's say, like your uncle is suddenly like in Georgia, but you are in Turkey now. And in order to go visit, you can't just cross the border right there. You would have to go to Ankara and then Istanbul and then to Tbilisi and then take a long uh, bus ride to then go to, like, literally a place that you can see with your own eyeballs on the other wow. side. And so it was a particular song form that was actually created to carry the sound across the border. Oftentimes, um, it would be a way of gathering news. One person would sing something, then another person on their side would sing either it back or something else back. This particular song is, is an invitation to, to a woman's work, work party. And again, the work party would more than likely be textile activities. That we would just at least get one spinning song into, um, yeah. because again, spinning was such a um common activity. I mean, you know, up until again, the industrial revolution, women would have been doing that constantly. Um, and in fact, in other places in the world where the industrial revolution took a little bit longer to have an effect, um you know, such as maybe places within Georgia or, you know, which um, uh, is where the spinning song that, we're, that we'll listen to next is, uh, comes from. It would have been, you know, something that would have been practiced until very recently. And actually, I highly recommend trying spinning. If you enjoy doing, uh, you know, any sort of handiwork at all, um, spinning re- reminds me a lot of knitting in that it's just, it's, it's a very meditative, it can actually be quite fun. And actually, it's, it's interesting, to you know, this is it only reminds me because, you know, there's, there's uh, some connection in the ancient world between Greece and Georgia. You have, like, Medea and Jason and the Argonauts and mm-hmm. all that stuff. Um, Venus de Milo, the sculpture, doesn't have arms. It's been studied by a number of art historians to try to, you know, get a sense of what activity she's involved in, what her arms might have been doing. And there's really compelling evidence that her arms were spinning. This theory has been around for at least 50 years, but it's
1: been explored recently by modern means. In the extended show notes at EveryRecordEverRecorded.com, there's a link to a digital model, made with 3D photo capture, that shows how the Venus de Myla would look with a distaff and spindle in her arms. Pretty cool. Also, the show notes do have a full translation of this song, but I like it so much that I have to tell you right now. Oi naneda, nana, they're singing, the spindle has rubbed sore my hands, the spindle would that it break. He promised me, he deceived me, he would break his neck. On the flax comb there remains yarn, for you I still have respect.
5: O inidanana, her Kirtalma Heli Damgala, Oy nandanana, Kertalgasa techilmo. Oi nandanana, Dampir Damatwila. damo nidanana kiss her mosa
6: te hilmo.
5: Oy nidanana, dam'cha. tridamcha. O nanidanana che mesemidamha Oinani danana da nana, a txaroze kharigavdene O inani da nana, a txitelidarki anio Oy, nana, vipire
2: So I feel I'd be a little remiss to not also include a lullaby, because again, you know, this is a, a good example of this idea of women as gatekeepers of liminal realms. Uh, there's so much mythology, Irish mythology specifically, you know, around um, sleep and the fairy realm and mm. falling into long periods of sleep um, connections to the other world. So yeah, this is this is one Irish lullaby. <laughs>
7: Einyini, <speaking> <Spanish> Einyini, <speaking> kara liigi, kara liigi, kara liigi, kashan <Spanish> khliamui, kashan khliamui, kara liigi, kashan khliamui, kashan khliamui. An landu is an fiakhtu Chegeya khallu, chegeya khallu An khair is an prayachan Chegeya khallu, chegeya khallu Karaligi, karaligi, kashanghliyamwi
2: so I think it would be nice to also include a folktale that mm. incorporates all these, these themes. Um, there's one in particular that I just think it's it's one of my favorite Irish folk tales but it's it's also found throughout Scandinavia throughout the Nordic world it's it's the 12 wild geese 12 brothers and there's a, a queen king wishing that they had a daughter they would give up everything that they have to just have a daughter you know they already have 12 12 boys and uh in in one variant you know there's a a witch that then shows shows up it's like oh you wicked woman you know wishing that you had a daughter and willing to give up your, your sons in order to have a daughter. Well, then you're going to get your wish. You will have a daughter, but you're, you're going to lose your sons. And so what happens is that the sons get turned into geese and at night they change back into human form, but they are basically exiled from, from the, the human world. And, um, the, Young girl doesn't even know that they exist. She finds out, and she feels terrible, and she feels like she needs to go and and uh, help save her brothers. So she goes off, you know, into the wilderness to find them. And they have made a pact that so they would kill her if they ever came across her. She finds where they are. They decide not to kill her, but in order for her to release them from the curse, she also meets a witch who says that. They will be released from this, probably the same witch, from this this curse if she is able to weave 12 shirts from nettles. And during that time, she cannot use her voice. And so she cannot speak, and she's taking nettles, which, you know, a stinging plant that you would think would be difficult <laughs> to to make a shirt out of. But there's actually a lot of archaeological evidence uh, in, in Scandinavia, especially, um, where there's this long tradition of making fabric from nettles. And another thing about nettles, you know, it's, they're also used as medicine. And it's this interesting sort of concept, a stinging plant that, that also has these, these healing properties, but you have to be willing to get through them. Hurt yourself, and that's part of the whole process of it, you know. But so she's making these and um not speaking, and there's uh, another prince from some other place that's on a hunt, of course, of so someone comes across her and falls in love. And she falls in love with him, but she can't speak. They get they married, she pops out a child. And um the mother-in-law throws the child up the window. Cuts her own hands so that she puts some blood on her mouth on on the uh, sleeping queen's mouth. And then she goes to her son is just like, Oh, your wife is eating your child, you know. And she can't speak for herself. So she can't defend herself. This happens, I think, two times. And um by the third time, King is just like, I have no choice, but I got to get rid of you. Like you're eating children. like mm-hmm. right. And in the meantime, she's still creating these shirts. And so she's getting strung up to be burned alive. But she's like, she's on her last, last shirt. And it's almost done, but then her her brothers come flying in, and she throws the shirts on them. And uh, the last one wasn't quite done, so it gets thrown on the last brother. They, they all become human again. That last brother is just missing an arm. And uh, at that moment, because she's she's fulfilled her promise, and she can speak again, and she's able to... Um, stand up for herself and explain what's what's happened long story short the king is overjoyed and and they instead of burning his his wife they he burns his mother at the the stake of course there are elements that are really problematic and and worrying (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I think it is it really does speak to um, the voice being being so powerful that like in order for this magic to work she cannot use her voice and instead, that sort of energy, that magic energy that would be in the voice, is being channeled into spinning, and it it also speaks to again the magical properties of spinning. Being able to spin and create this cloth is powerful enough to break a magical curse. And there's just this is just one small example of just so many stories. Rumpelstiltskin is another. You know, mm. like there's just so many stories that that involve some sort of textile making and voice and the other world you know we have sleeping beauty you know who uh, somehow pierces her finger on a spinning wheel which there's nothing on a spinning wheel that's that sharp for instance <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you like that but, but whatever it's you know part of the narrative but going into the, you know this this liminal other other world space you know as a that's that's the power that spinning has
1: Hey, this has been episode 5 of Every Record Ever Recorded, A Field Guide to the Music of Earth. I'm Hannah, and my guest today was singer, composer, and folklorist Christine Barrett. This episode was recorded pre-coronavirus in Christine's home studio on her fantastic houseboat, kind of like being inside her fantastic brain, with Gandalf the dog keeping us on schedule.
2: Oh, great. <laughs> I, I knew. I, I was just waiting for him to do a squeak toy. <laughs>
1: We're listening now to a track of Christine's, her own arrangement of the Lithuanian Sutartine about bees that we heard early in the show. It's off her most recent album, which draws inspiration from many of the things we talked about today. Her website is christinebarrett.com, and of course there's a link in the show notes. Check EveryRecordEverRecorded.com for extended show notes, including full translations of almost everything we listen to, a streamable playlist and links to find out more, and you can also join the show's mailing list to be the first to find out about new episodes. I'm going to borrow a promo trick from another favorite podcast of mine, the inimitable Cocaine and Rhinestones, and ask that if you like the show, you tell one person about it. Just one. This episode is for just a few of the singing, spinning, weaving, magic-working women in my life. My textile artist sister and mom, and my singing compatriot Anna, who, among other things, helps me work it all out. Do come back next time for a new episode about a different musical genre, and hey, thank you for listening.